Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. Friday the 13th, the TV series, was not on my radar when it premiered. I didn't know about it. I just sort of stumbled upon it one night. I turned it on and I saw the title, Friday the 13th, the series, and I thought, is this based on the movies? Which, of course, made me very curious to watch it. I was also a little nervous because I thought, this is a late night slasher TV series. I'm not going to sleep at all. Instead, I was surprised to find this original story, a story that appealed to me about people searching for cursed antiques and I gobbled it up and was very excited for it. But as I said, it wasn't on my radar, which also meant it wasn't on any of the radar of my friends. So the next day, when I went to talk to them about it, they had no idea what I was talking about. And what made matters worse, they weren't very interested in it. No matter how much I would talk about this show, I could never get them interested in it, which was tough when you had a close circle of friends and had a new thing you were excited about. If you couldn't get a single one of them on board with it, well, then you had to try to enjoy it alone without constant talking about future plots and the characters. That is exactly what would happen with Friday the 13th, the series. No matter what I told my friends about it, no matter how many times I got them to watch a single episode, they were so disappointed that it had nothing to do with Jason Voorhees and the movies that they would never get aboard. And so I watched the series myself alone and would occasionally bring it up, see if anybody would bite as to wanting to watch it. Slowly, I began to appreciate that this was my show, a thing that I would enjoy. And eventually, I started to not talk about TV as much with my friends. Maybe our tastes had diverged, or maybe it just became less important because I learned that I didn't need them to enjoy the show more deeply. Instead, I had my own thoughts about it, and I could replay the plot of the show again and again. I also learned that this type of show is one that I liked, and one that I would seek out in the future, and would find sort of a like-minded TV show in something like The X-Files a couple of years later. That was a show I was able to get my friends to talk about me with, but it just didn't feel as important to do so. When you hear about milestones in people's lives, you think of big picture things that we all have in common, but actually it's these little things, like a TV series that you like but your friends don't, that forces you to be alone a little bit more with yourself and to discover some stuff about yourself. I feel like I've lost a lot of those milestones over the years because I didn't consider them. As I replay things in my mind, I'm realizing how much more important they were than I realized at the time. So on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about a great TV show that is worth your time, and one I'm always happy to talk to you about, Friday the 13th, the series. We'll talk about the people in front of and behind the camera. We'll talk about its creation, its music, its premiere, its reception, its too abrupt cancellation, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
Friday the 13th, the series, was a horror television series that ran from October 3rd, 1987 to May 26th, 1990 in first-run syndication. It would follow the adventures of Ryan and Mickey, two cousins who inherited an antique store. They would learn that the items in that store were cursed because of their evil uncle, and they learned that from the third member of their group, Jack Marshak, who is a worldly ex-magician, former everything in the show. Just a great character. They had sold all these cursed antiques, and now they need to get them back. How did these cursed antiques come about? Well, the antique store was owned by Mickey and Ryan's uncle, Louis, who his full name is Louis Vendretti, was played by R.G. Armstrong. I didn't know this until recently, but Vendretti means Friday in French. So I'm working in some Friday there. He had made a deal with the devil to sell cursed antiques out of his shop in exchange for immortality, magical powers, and wealth. He rebels against the devil and breaks his deal, and the devil comes to claim his soul, but the antiques are left behind. At this point, cousins Mickey and Ryan, played by Louise Roby, who went by just Roby at the time, and I will just call her Roby moving forward, and her cousin Ryan Dalion, played by John D. LeMay. When they get the store, they decide they don't want to keep this musty old store, and they sell off all these antiques. Then Jack Marshak, played by the amazing Chris Wiggins, shows up. He was the person who traveled around collecting the antiques for Lewis, but didn't know what Lewis was up to. He was retired at this point, but he is very well informed, having been a a cultist and all sorts of other things. What the show becomes is a Monster of the Week type show, where every week they go and try to find one of the antiques and bring it back to the store and store it in the vault, where it's supposedly going to be safe. Each of the cursed objects gives the user some sort of power, but it changes them and often takes something away and... Because it gives them power, they will engage with the item more than they should, often to the dismay of everyone around them and ultimately to them, as the items will eventually destroy them. It was notable because it was a horror, scary show in the 80s, which was not extremely common, especially on network television. And because it was in the horror classification, it helped to push the boundaries of what you could see on TV. Certainly some of the episodes were very PG or PG-13 looking when you saw it, especially with violence. So it was slightly controversial at the time, and we'll talk about that when we get to the reviews. Things would change a bit between the second and third season. Ryan would leave the show and be replaced by Johnny Ventura, played by Steve Monarch, who would join Mickey maybe supposed to be as a love interest, it's not very clear, and play Ryan's role basically moving forward. There's a new series coming to television. If you don't watch it, you could be making a grave error. The show was created by Frank G. Mancuso Jr., born in 1958. He's an American film producer. 
He would produce sequels to Friday the 13th. He also happened to be the son of the president of Paramount Pictures at the time, Frank Mancuso Sr. His father, who came to him, said he could make any show he wanted at the time, as long as it was scary and kept the title of Friday the 13th, which was a good move in some ways because they wanted people to know it was a scary show right away. And Friday the 13th let people know that this was going to be scary. But it was also misleading because people thought it would be about Jason Voorhees. It's sort of like Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, where you think Michael Myers is going to be there, and then he's not. They had a working title, which was The 13th Hour, but as noted, it needed to be Friday the 13th to go forward. If you were a fan of the show and talked to anybody at the time about it, there were rumors that they would do some sort of big crossover, or that maybe the mask that Jason wears would show up as an artifact they needed to collect and bring back, but that never happened. Maybe if there had been five or six seasons, that would have, but it didn't. That said, just the title got them 72 episodes and three seasons, so not bad. And in fact, once they had discarded the idea of not being associated with Jason Voorhees, they very carefully avoided anything that could hint at Friday the 13th, because they kind of wanted to try to build their own universe. Filming took place in Toronto, Canada, which would become a very common thing moving forward. But this was very early on in American shows being filmed in Canada. And that would cause a good amount of headaches for people working on the show and working for the show. It was also quite isolating because there wasn't a big film industry up there. The actors and production crew had to be up there for X amount of months every year and not getting work in other things. And that would lead to a decision by John LeMay later that affected the show. It would originally be a late night show, which is where I caught it. But it was fairly well received and would eventually move into a prime time spot. And it was successful because males 18 to 49 would watch it. It would place second in that demographic just behind Star Trek The Next Generation. In addition, in the first season, the show placed fifth in the female 18 to 49 demographic. So well-liked by both men and women at the time, especially during season one. Budget was about a half million dollars per episode, which got some pretty good talent behind it. Notably, David Cronenberg, the director, who was already a major name in the film industry, he had done Scanners, Videodrome, and The Fly, would come on to direct an episode of Friday the 13th, the series. His episode is Faith Healer, and it really gets into the body horror stuff that Cronenberg is known for. And it is something to see. It's very Cronenberg-esque. While the show was known as Friday the 13th here in America, oddly enough, I found out that up in Canada, when it was broadcast, it got another title. It was known as Friday's Curse. So I guess they didn't really care if it was Friday the 13th related up there. I guess it wasn't as popular a movie there as it was here. So they came up with a different name. I kind of like the 13th hour more than Friday's Curse. I guess it plays pretty well with Uncle Lewis's name. Now, there's a new reason to fear the dark. Friday the 13th, the series. The TV show has a solid cast, starting with Jack Marshak, who was played by Chris Wiggins. Chris Wiggins is a good anchoring presence for the show, as is his character, Jack Marshak, who is an expert in the occult and a former magician who's traveled all around the world, been in the military. He knows almost exactly what to do whenever it's necessary, and almost always makes any situation that the 
other characters in the show get stuck in seem like something they could get out of. The role was played by Chris Wiggins, who was an English-born Canadian actor born in 1931. He passed away in 2017. Started out his life as a banker, then moved to Canada in 1952 and took up acting. He's probably best known to people for his role in Friday the 13th, the series, but he had a lot of other roles. He did a lot of work in radio and television. If you're a Marvel fan and ever saw the 60s Marvel cartoons, he's the voice of both Thor and Dr. Donald Blake in those cartoons. He would also voice Mysterio in those 60s Spider-Man cartoons. He lent his voice to the Care Bearers, Dino Saucers, Star Wars Droids and Ewoks, Babar, Richard Scarry's works, and many, many other things. I read about his presence on the set and his interaction with the two much younger actors and everyone who worked on the show seemed to love this guy. Not a single bad word was written about him in anything that I found. He appeared to be a pro, someone who was just happy to be working and happy to pass on things he had learned to other people when they were willing to listen to them. And he was with much younger people, starting with Roby, who played Mickey Foster. Michelle Mickey Foster co-owns the antique store with her cousin by marriage, Ryan. When she starts off, she is not a deep character, much more concerned with just getting out of this antique store and getting back to her life. She had been engaged and was supposed to get married, but that kind of falls apart as she realizes she has a duty to recover these antiques to make the world better. Roby is a British-French-Canadian former model, actress, singer-songwriter, much like lots of other celebrities, she used just one word as her name, and she used her last name, Roby. Most people are going to know her for her work in Friday the 13th, the series. She started out as a model, but also had an interest in music and would front the band Louise and the Creeps and was signed to a record contract. You can hear her music online and see live performances on YouTube. It's a pretty good act, high energy, but she didn't stop modeling at this point. So between having a band and walking runways and doing advertising campaigns, she decided she also wanted to work in acting. She did this while also doing her own solo album, which released in 1984. One single, which was a cover of the song One Night in Bangkok from the musical Chess, would actually chart. It was on the Billboard Hot 100 in March of 85, peaking at 77. But on the Billboard Hot Dance Play chart, it would get to number three. It was Roby who pushed for Mickey to have the look she did on the show, which made her stand out dramatically in the show. She was always dressed in a very contemporary way at the time. After the show, Roby would continue to release music, and you can find her music on iTunes and Amazon even today. Now, before I get on to Ryan, played by John LeMay, I want to talk about the fact that these two characters are cousins on the show. Now, the producers of the show did this because they didn't want to kind of fall into the moonlighting trap of having a will-they-or-won't-they relationship. So they thought if they made them related, then there's no chance of that happening. But if you watch this show, especially early on, there's a lot of tension between the two. And they know they're cousins, and yet there's still this weird tension as if they like each other, especially Ryan liking Mickey. That fades away, but you got to get through a couple of episodes. I try to remember back to when I was first watching the show. And even at the time, I thought it was kind of odd. But as the show went on, it became much more of a 
family relationship, which is quite a relief. I think they could have actually skipped a lot of that tension by making them even closer family members. Or they could have just made them possibly just be friends as time went along. But I guess you couldn't do that in older television shows. If you had a couple that could potentially be a couple, you had to always think, could they be a couple? Ryan Dalion is Mickey's cousin by marriage, so not by blood. Seems like that's important when you read it in places. Maybe that explains a lot of the tension early on because they're not blood related. He is a failed art student. And as the show goes on, he has some sort of feelings about Mickey. He's kind of pushing something there, but Mickey's always pushing back. And I can't tell if it's just closeness because he needs someone close to him. I can't stress that enough. The cousin thing is weird. LeMay being up in Canada filming this show felt like he was missing opportunities. And he asked to be let out of the show, something that he would say in interviews later he regrets. He doesn't think he handled it well. He also doesn't think it was probably the right timing, which if you look at his filmography, he would still work after the show, but would never get anything as big as this show. And him leaving, I'm not saying it's what made the show get canceled, but it didn't help with keeping the show on the air, most certainly. The people who produced the show were awfully nice about letting him go. Maybe he was being difficult. Maybe they just were relieved to have someone who didn't want to be there go away. But they let him out of his contract if he agreed to do a two-part farewell episode, which he would do. And in the third season, he gets turned into a child and is no longer on the show. LeMay was born in St. Paul, Minnesota. He would move to L.A. in 1985 and would appear on other TV shows like The Facts of Life. But he's best known for his role in Friday the 13th, the series. And he would make an appearance in a Friday the 13th movie in Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday, where he played a different character, Stephen Freeman. There were two other TV shows that didn't make it, but he was a part of Over My Dead Body and Eddie Dodd. In 2014, he got back into musical theater and starred in a regional production of Legally Blonde, so continuing to work as actors do. When he left, he was replaced by... Steve Monarch, who played Johnny Ventura, the kid of the show, who they refer to as a kid, but he looks just as old as everybody else. In his introduction in season two, he's kind of a jerk, just trying to date Mickey. But when he's brought back in and we learn more about him, they develop the character and he gets a little bit better. Steve Monarch was born in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey in 1959. And would go to New York to become a actor and writer. He would appear in films like Sixteen Candles and No Small Affair. If you like after-school specials, and I really do, he appeared in the very famous one, Stoned, in 1980, that had Scott Bayo in it, and the CBS School Break special, The Day the Senior Class Got Married, with Paul Dooley. Much like everybody else on the show, he would be best known for the role he had in... Friday the 13th, the series, mostly because he was the lead, but he would get other roles appearing on things like ER and Law and Order, Criminal Intent. So an actor and director who continues to work. Louis Vendretti was played by R.G. Armstrong. He is the antique dealer who makes a deal with the devil. Even though he gets killed in the first episode, he does come back from time to time on the show and is always really evil. Robert Golden Armstrong was born in 1917, passed away in 2012, would appear in dozens of westerns, working with Sam Peckinpah, great character actor, 
great look to him, especially in Westerns. His first film appearance was in 1954, and he would work nonstop from there on both movies and television, especially in Westerns. But it wasn't just Westerns. He would appear on The Fugitive, The Andy Griffith Show, The Twilight Zone, Perry Mason, Hawaii Five-0, Starsky and Hutch. You name it, he's been on it. If you are a child of the 90s and enjoy heavy metal music, you have probably seen the music video for Metallica's Enter Sandman. He is in that music video playing the lead character, creepy looking as all get out. There is another character who made a very short appearance, but it looked like he was going to be a regular. Rashid was played by Elias Zaro. He's this magician who helps fight off Lewis's ghost. He is an old friend of Jack's and very knowledgeable in the occult as well. Elias Zaro is a Canadian actor who's worked in things like MacGyver, Police Academy, the 1980s Twilight Zone, and many more. If you're looking for some episodes to watch the first time you watch Friday the 13th, here's Metagirl with the top five episodes of Friday the 13th, the series. Five, four, three, two, one. Greetings, retro fans! This is Metagirl, bringing you the top five episodes of the fantasy horror TV show, Friday the 13th, the series. At number five is Season 1, Episode 9, Root of All Evil. Mickey, Ryan, and Jack search for a diabolical garden mulcher, which a gardener, played by Enrico Colantoni of Just Shoot Me and Veronica Mars fame, is using to kill rich folks. Fargo style. Why? The mulcher turns people into money. The more you're worth, the more cash the mulcher spits out as it chews you up. In a fiancé subplot, we're reminded that Mickey is engaged to Lloyd, who she hasn't seen in months. There's some minor drama there, but in brief, things don't work out for the couple. While rooting out the mulcher, Ryan is knocked unconscious and abducted by the villainous gardener. In the final fight, the gardener himself ends up in the mulcher, but instead of making money, the mulcher merely belches blood. Jack remarks, I guess he wasn't even worth a dollar. Number four is season two, episode 20, Mesmer's Bauble. Creepy record store clerk Howard is obsessed with pop diva Angelica, played by real-world 80s pop singer and prince protege Vanity. When he gets hold of a cursed amulet that allows the keeper's wishes to come true, he's able to take his obsession to the next level. First, homely Howard asks the pendant for attractiveness and a chance to be close to Angelica. Then, the newly handsome man wishes for and receives her love. Finally, he wishes to become the diva himself, literally, horrifically, melting into her body. The transformation is successful. Howard is now Angelica. But the triumph is short-lived as mid-concert, Mickey and Ryan manage to grab the singer and the necklace, reversing the mystical gifts previously granted. Number three is season one, episode 21, Double Exposure. A machete murderer terrorizes the city. Ryan gets a glimpse of his face and is convinced that the killer is famed TV anchorman Winston Knight. However, Knight has an ironclad alibi for the time of the murders. He was live on the air taking calls from the machete murderer. How could this be? Knight uses a cursed camera to create an exact duplicate of himself that kills for him while he's on TV. Great alibi, great ratings. As long as he destroys the negative within an allotted period of time, Knight is fine. Unfortunately, Ryan's new girlfriend, Kathy, witnesses one of the murders and realizes that, somehow, Knight is the machete murderer. 
Having seen too much, she is killed by a knight duplicate. This fuels Ryan's rage and motivation to catch the culprit. Things get more chaotic. Knight confronts Jack using the camera to create a Jack clone and ordering the duplicate to kill Ryan and Mickey. Jack manages to kill his own doppelganger. Knight's duplicate decides that it wants Knight's human life, so it kills the original Knight. But the Knight duplicate has little time to savor its newfound human life before it dies of previously inflicted wounds. At number two is season one, episode 11, Scarecrow. The curious good in this episode is a ghoulish scarecrow that comes to life and guarantees good crops after it beheads three victims. How do you employ the scarecrow's services? Just pin a photo of the person you want killed to the monster's lapel and he takes off with his scythe to collect their head. Mickey and Ryan come looking for the Scarecrow, but the Fiend's owner, Marge, soon realizes what they're up to and tries to use Mickey's driver's license to mark her as the Scarecrow's third victim to wrap up the harvest season. Our heroes are almost killed in a final confrontation with Marge until the Scarecrow turns on her, killing his keeper. The episode ends on a sinister note when Mickey asks, you know, there's one thing still nagging at me, that Scarecrow, after it killed all those people, what did it do with the heads? The question goes unanswered. And the number one episode of Friday the 13th the series is season two, episode four, Tales I Live, Heads You Die. A devil-worshipping cult plans to bring Satan to Earth using the cursed coin of Ziocles to kill enemies and resurrect allies. The coin is powered by taking the life of an unsuspecting victim and then transferring their life force into a corpse, effectively bringing the latter back to life. Tipped off by a journalist who is later killed by the coven, the Curious Goods Gang investigates the sinister sect. While spying on the group, Mickey is captured and killed by the coin. Jack and Ryan are understandably crestfallen. Heartbroken Ryan vows to quit the pursuit of cursed antiques once they've defeated these evildoers. Fortunately, our heroes manage to trick the episode's antagonists into resurrecting Mickey. Huzzah! In the end, the villains are crushed beneath their crumbling temple. The malevolent coin is also buried beneath the rubble, waiting to be unearthed by Satanists of the future. And there you have it, the Retroists' top five episodes of the horror show, Friday the 13th, the series. Until next time, List fans, this has been Metagirl. Thanks, Metagirl. Music on the show was provided by Fred Mullen. Mullen is a record producer, composer, and songwriter. He has worked with people like Johnny Mathis and Billy Ray Cyrus. For TV, he's worked on... Beverly Hills 90210, Hard Copy, Forever Night, and of course, Friday the 13th, the series. He also would contribute music to the Friday the 13th films. He became very popular as a producer after co-producing Dan Hill's international hit record, Sometimes When We Touch, back in 1977. He started a relationship with Disney that's still going on to this day, making lots of music for them. I heard a great story from him where he talks about composing music electronically back in the day and how easy it was to lose the music you were working on. And it was a great cautionary tale about making sure you save your work or at least have the ability to save your work. But a great score, not available at the time when it was released, but was released as an album that is very expensive now. So if you want to own it on vinyl, 
very pricey. Hopefully we'll get a re-release of it. Of course, if you don't have a record player, you can always go to YouTube. Someone has uploaded it for you to listen to. The show premiered on October 3rd, 1987, and would run until May 26, 1990. I have the TV guide. Here it is. From when it premiered the very night, and it would run at 11 p.m. that night. But what else was on that night at... Let's see here. Hold on. Change that. It was a pretty good lineup on NBC. You had The Facts of Life at 8 o'clock, 227 at 8.30, The Golden Girls at 9, Amen at 9.30, and Hunter at 10. On ABC that night, you had Once a Hero at 8 o'clock, O'Hara at 9, and Hotel at 10. So three one-hour shows that night. Huh. Finally, on CBS at 8, you had Frank's Place, Sister Sam at 8.30, Legwork at 9, and then West 57th Street at 10. Not a bad night of TV. I'd be definitely watching NBC. But probably I would have been watching other channels because they had an hour and a half of Doctor Who on PBS that night. I would have probably watched that. Or on HBO, you had Stand By Me, followed by The Name of the Rose. On Showtime, you had Delta Force and The Gary Shandling Show. On Cinemax, you had Fast Times at Ridgemont High and From Beyond. And on Prism, you had Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Poltergeist to the Other Side. Outside of NBC, I don't think I would have been watching a lot of network TV because that's a pretty killer lineup from 8 to 10. Facts of Life 227, Golden Girls, and Amen. I wasn't a big Hunter fan, so it would have been easy to turn that off and then move over and watch the WWF Wrestling Spotlight, which had been pretty great. But no matter what, we're getting to 11, and it was a pretty easy decision to try to watch Friday the 13th because you had Benny Hill on another channel, but basically just the news. So I liked when it was still a late-night show rather than having to compete against primetime stuff. Pretty great. It did get mentioned in TV Guide, but not a lot. I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second because... I want to talk about the reviews that came out for Friday the 13th, the series, when it premiered. They fall generally into two classes. One from people who thought it was too vulgar and too violent and too graphic. And then others who thought it was the opposite and not enough of those things. I've often found that when mainstream people try to review horror, it doesn't reflect well on horror because... They don't seem to understand how to review horror or enjoy it. In fact, in one review from a smaller paper, I read, the person writing the review never even finished the episode of Friday the 13th they were writing about. They instead asked their spouse to finish it and tell them about it. And that passed as a review in a paper, which I thought was ludicrous. It does get reviewed in TV Guide in December of 88, which was over a month after it premiered. Reviewer Merrill Panett does not like Friday the 13th, the series, referring to it as heavy-handed, artificial, mechanical, basically saying that the show itself is a horror. After summarizing the show, I'm not sure how they could jump to that conclusion, because the way they described it makes the show sound amazing, when they describe the plots, which are just way over the top and crazy. One of my favorite parts of this review was that they had access to the press release and John LeMay makes a joke where he said on the day of his audition, he read a horoscope that said that anything I wanted would be mine. And so he said, is it any wonder I'm here in Toronto in a show called Friday the 13th? 
Overall, though, what you read here in TV Guide is depressingly accurate. It is across the board how people describe the show. Luckily, people from 18 to 49 didn't seem to care about any of these reviews and just enjoyed the show the way that they tend to always do. The show would do pretty well during its first two seasons. It would also get some award nominations. It would get two Emmy nominations, one in 88 and another in 89, for visual and graphic effects. It would be nominated by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films as Best Series, and would get 12 nominations by the Gemini Awards in Canada. Despite all of this, the show would get cancelled, and it would get cancelled rather abruptly. You had 26 episodes in the first season, and then 26 more episodes in the second season. And then, as the third season was drawing to what would have been a close in production, they decided to abruptly end the show during the filming of the 20th episode, which would become the series finale. It was so abrupt that they weren't even able to record any scenes that would explain why the show was ending, which is a real shame. It was very difficult to get your hands on this show on home video. There was lots of bootleg copies on VHS out there. Luckily, it did run in some syndication in places so you could occasionally see it. But when DVD came, the show was released all three seasons on DVD in the U.S. They would eventually also release it in other countries like Australia and Germany. If you're a fan of the show and want a deeper understanding of it, Curious Goods, behind the scenes of Friday the 13th, the series by Elise Wax, was released in October of 2015. It is still available. It has some fun stories from behind the scenes, but also a lot of episode summaries. So if you like deep dives into episodes, this is a great source for you. Friday the 13th, the series maybe started as a spin, or at least tried to cash in on the popularity of the Friday the 13th movies. But in establishing itself, it created a template for TV shows, ones that would be followed by other shows that would follow. Shows like The X-Files and even shows like Angel, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or very specifically Warehouse 13. And all of these shows have had a pretty big audience. People like this setup. And so Friday the 13th, the series, if you haven't seen it, might be right up your alley if you've enjoyed them. It's a little bumpy at first when you get started. You have to learn the characters, but it's bumpy in a fun way, in a mid to late 80s sort of way. I would try to just enjoy the look and feel of the show and try to understand that these are young actors still trying to find themselves and that they do get better as the show moves along and the plots get crazier and more fun as they go along. This seems like a show that's ready for a reboot. Sadly, Chris Wiggins passed away, but Roby and John LeMay are still out there. They could be brought on, maybe playing the role that Chris Wiggins had been playing and bringing a whole new generation in to help recover the artifacts that had been lost. If they do, I will be watching it because I really enjoy this show and I hope you give it a chance because I think you'll like it too. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and instagram.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. 
He's at peachy pixel eight. That's the word peachy, the word pixel, and the number eight. Thanks to Metagirl for another great top five list. You should follow Metagirl on Twitter. She's at Metagirl, M-A-T-A-G-R-R-L. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can start by giving the show a five-star review or wherever you download it. It really is the five-star reviews that help. So if you can give the show one of those, I'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show further, you can drop by patreon.com slash retroist. Supporters of the show get access to bonus tracks, supporter episodes, bonus scans, access to the Retroist Discord, which is a great online retro community. And I'd really like to see you there. Thanks everyone for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. The stories are mechanical, the suspense artificial, the dialogue stilted, the acting heavy-handed, the direction routine. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.